Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. In season three, we explore the tension between faith and experience and tease this out as a distinction between faith and relationship. This dovetails well with our value for intimacy with God and encourages us to explore what we can expect a relationship with God to mean for individuals and communities intentionally practicing the presence of God. So Steve and I get to chat to John W. Moorhead. He's a proponent of a religious diplomacy approach between people of different faith. John's thinking is refreshing and his work increasingly relevant, particularly in light of our post-secular, pluralistic world and worldview. For a lot of people, there's a focus just on the work and the ideas, and um, we really just want to get into the person behind the writing, behind the contributions that you make, and get a bit into your, your experience. I'm, I'm really hoping you're up for, for a bit more of a personal conversation before getting a bit more heady, I suppose. Yeah, I like doing that on my podcast. I mean, I, I one, one thing I think in theology that the average uh, person doesn't appreciate is that theology in many ways is biography. And so our journeys, our journeys shape that over the course of our lives. So that'd be great. So John, thanks again for, for joining us in conversation here. A big part of our focus of our podcast is around the experience of God. And so when we, we chat with guests, we love to dig into some of your story. So I'd ask you two things. You can give us a, a bit of an overview of, of your life and story and what's brought you to this point. But specifically, we'd love to dig into your early experiences of God and how you would describe those and what you might share there. So if that's enough of a enough of a direction for you to just take and run with, um, then feel free. Otherwise, I can pose it a bit more clearly. Yeah, it's it's always a challenge, you know, to say uh, this is my early experience of God, because sometimes I, you know, I wonder, are we experiencing God? Are we experiencing our own inner psychology? So yeah. I'll, I'll do my, I'll do my best. But I was uh, raised uh, in the United States in the state of California, Northern California, and uh, I was largely agnostic growing up. That was our household experience. But we had roots mm. on my dad's side in a Mormon splinter group, uh, the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, today, it's known as the Community of Christ. And uh, it's got some similarities, but also significant differences from the Utah-based uh, Mormon church. And when I was in my early teens, uh, I had that uh, that stereotypical burning in the bosom emotional kind of response to praying about the Book of Mormon and about that particular group. And I was uh, under the emotional impression that that was uh, the church I was supposed to be a part of. And I was a member of that. I was baptized. I was a member for eight years. Um, but it was later on when I read uh, Apologetic Works Critical of Mormonism that didn't convert me to something else, but it did tear down my my confidence in the history and teachings of Joseph Smith and that type of thing. So I went through a, a faith crisis and eventually landed in uh, American evangelicalism. But it was kind of a skeptical kind of uh, evangelical experience for me for the first several years, because my mindset was if I had this supposedly powerful spiritual experience, which later I discovered or thought to be false, then how do I know any religious experience has any validity to it? Maybe I'm simply telling myself stories that, that I want to believe. And so I really I identify even to this day with that character in the Gospels where he encounters Christ and he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This uh, duality of belief and unbelief, uh, faith and skepticism united together. And I, I, just as a brief aside, I think one of the the shortcomings, particularly of American evangelicalism, is we put so much emphasis on certitude 
and evidence that demands a verdict and, and rationality. And we don't leave much room for, for wrestling with, uh, with the questions. We don't have much epistemic humility. And, and there's always a, I work and operate spiritually in my convictions, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that I might be wrong in some areas. And so I think it's a healthy tension to hold on to it at whatever point you are in your faith. So I was involved in a very conservative uh, expression of evangelicalism. I got involved in what's called countercult ministry. Uh, and that is uh, basically an apologetic worldview contrast with other religious traditions where you create a doctrinal template. Here's what we believe, and it's based on the Bible. Here's what they believe. And therefore, because it doesn't align with the Bible, they're wrong. And we use that not only in the countercult circles as a way of of trying to point out uh, the difference between us and them, but in many times it, it functions for countercult folks as a form of evangelism. If I tell you that you're unbiblical, then you should embrace what I'm presenting to you. And so I, I used that countercult template for many years, but I've always been very well read and I, I try to read broadly. I've read in the sociology of religion. Uh, missiology, cross cultural missions, the history of Christian missions. And, and it dawned on me that there's a very different way in which um, missionaries in general overseas in that context tend to, to uh, interact with the religious other compared to how American evangelicals do it in, in America. Uh, we're very apologetic, polemical in this country, whereas the missionary, again, in general, tends to incarnate and embed themselves in the culture, develop relationships, uh, care for the other, uh, extend uh, an invitation to the gospel when it's appropriate, but, but it's not just a, a hit and run kind of approach. And so I eventually ended up leaving the countercult and started pursuing a missiological approach, which would eventually lead me to where I am kind of today in a dialogical and what we call a religious diplomacy approach, because I stopped one day and asked myself, what do I do when I'm not evangelizing? How do I live with Muslims and Mormons and pagans uh, when I'm not evangelizing? Is, there has to be something more. And so I started this, uh, this reflection on what it means to live in a religiously plural society and world. And you asked about my experience of God. I, I think early on, it was a God who was, I thought, very interested in boundary maintenance and fence building, us versus them. And uh, I really think that while every religion has its boundaries, otherwise we're all supposedly saying the same thing. At the same time, I really think, in, uh, especially in conservative Christian circles in America, we're missing the ethical and lived religious experience. How do we love God and neighbor even when we strongly disagree with him? So my understanding and experience of God has changed over the years as a result of that, that personal journey. I don't know if that answers your question. Mm, that's a great start. Thank that's you. A, that's a very nice, uh, neat summary. I, 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 I really love it. And I feel like I relate to it a lot. I, in, in, in my early days of faith, um, I was surrounded and mentored by people who were quite, quite fundamentalist. And I think in many ways also shaped by American evangelism, evangelicalism. And they similarly, you know, I was similarly introduced to a lot of the countercult stuff, but I, but from an early age, I, I was also situationally you know in a context where you're surrounded by people who've got all these different faiths and i wasn't raised in the faith so so christianity to me i was an outsider to it and if anything i i fought against it and resisted it so it was it was, it was quite uh, you know i i loved a bit of your story and i love the way 
your language changes in relation to it, you know, the, the shift from the polemical and, you know, to the living in relation, you know, um, and, and, the, and the transition, you use the, the words of, of, of changing from the worldview versus worldview to a missiological approach. And then what was, what was the last thing you landed on from there? Uh, a dialogical or religious diplomacy approach to, to recognize that, you know, we have our views and we're going, we have irreconcilable differences with people in other religious traditions in addition to commonalities. But how do we live with that? How do we keep that in a peaceful tension so that uh, we, we can work together and, and, you know, make this the common good for everybody? I think that's where, particularly in America, I think evangelicals really struggle. So, so John, I wanted to ask you, I'm going to try and frame this well. You spoke earlier about this question of experience of God versus the questions of, you know, interacting with your own internal psychology, right? Yes. And I'm interested in that first experience that you talk about. If I heard you correctly, you were a teenager or late teen when you made that first commitment and you talk about this experience happening. And I'm interested if you can take us through both the personal and then the transition into this this question of can I can I trust these experiences? Can I can I actually believe what might have happened? So I'm interested in what if you're willing to share. I mean, feel free not to. But <clears throat> what that first experience was like? Were there any others in terms of experience? Whether it, where it felt like a direct experience with God or a religious experience, however you want to describe it, and then. Take us through the switch to that skeptical landing and going, is this God? Is it my own internal psychology? And, and again, this is always difficult because everybody thinks sure. that when they're having a spiritual experience, it's legitimate. And uh, depending upon one's perspective, it can be or it might not be. An atheist would say every alleged spiritual experience is uh, simply fooling oneself. So uh, yeah. I, th- I think it's a delicate balancing act that one has to do early on uh, within the, the broader Mormon tradition to encompass the various sects that would be, that would make up Mormonism and not just the church based in Utah. There, the way one tests for truth is to pray about the Book of Mormon, pray about the church, whether or not it's true. You don't assess evidence. You don't look at the history per se. You pray about it and you wait for God's response. Mm. And so I did that. And I had, I had, a, I woke up the next morning with a warm feeling on the inside. It was a subjective that I experience that I interpreted as God speaking to me and saying, yes. Now, the interesting thing is mm. in high school at the time, I, I remember having an English class with a friend who was a member of the Utah based church. So he and I would have debates before English class about which one of us was a member of the one true church. And so it made for some, some interesting dialogue. We had the same criteria, right? Where we were both praying about it. We both had subjective experiences but uh, obviously they were at odds with each other. So that points out the, the difficulty of the psychological dynamic and emotions. And I, I don't want to be understood as saying that emotions and experience shouldn't be a part of that. I think you can go too far on the other side of, of rationality. As mm. I understand human cognition, it's, it's a combination of the rational as well as the emotional. And many mm. times it's the emotion that leads the way. And that's why we, uh, we human beings all suffer from confirmation bias and and uh, motivated reasoning and these kinds of things where we assume things to be true and when they're threatened we double down and reject uh, evidence that might come at us at the con to the contrary so i was a member of this church i had this objective experience and a young lady i was dating at the time uh, in high school 
uh, shared with me apologetic materials that were critical of the church. And it, it created a cognitive dissonance for me. I, I, I didn't want to believe it. It wasn't aimed directly at my church specifically, but there was enough there that it really caused me some serious doubt. And so that's when I started to question my experience. Was I really experiencing God or is it something because of my family connection and just the, the, the emotions of it? Uh, my grandmother uh, was very mm -hmm. much involved in the church and wanted, wanted this for me. And so I kind of reassessed that. I reinterpreted that uh, later on. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said he was brought kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. I kind of felt like that <laughs> after leaving uh, the reorganized Latter-day Saints. And so, um, again, but then in this new uh, spiritual home, I had to assess if I had this experience before that I thought was an experience with God, and now I don't believe that, how do I know this experience or any experience I might have of the spiritual nature has any kind of legitimate grounding, or is it simply a psychological process? And so then I started uh, studying things like the historical Jesus. Uh, do we have good reason to believe that, that Jesus was a historical person? And, uh, you know, let alone the faith claims about him. Uh, can we trust the Bible? These kinds of things. So I went over in the direction of, of, of the rational, perhaps a bit too far, uh, because I had been burned on the experiential side of things. On the other side of that, many, many years later, again, I think we need balance. I, I think an informed faith life is a combination of both the emotional, the experiential, as well as rational considerations. I don't think we should have a, an irrational faith. Sometimes it might be irrational, go beyond the rational, certainly, but, uh, but not irrational. So again, balancing the psychology of convert, religious conversion out uh, in any religious tradition can be a tricky thing, but that was my experience. And, and when you refer to the cognitive dissonance to start with, I'm, I'm interested whether I'm just kind of reading into what you're saying or, or whether this is what I hear you saying. Are you saying that the experience was strong enough that when you came across this critique material, that, that the, the experience didn't give up immediately, didn't give up the fight immediately, and, that's, and there was a strong cognitive dissonance, or was it quite a quick move from, okay, so that experience can't have been true and let me move across, uh, embrace the critique material. And then you, you know, you talk of the journey moving into the rationality sort of sphere of things. Was, was there quite a bit of sort of tension between the two before the one one out over the other? Oh, yes. Yeah. There was some tension there. Encountering the material that, that was critical of my faith experience, I didn't just readily embrace it. Ah, well, I see that, that's, that's logical, makes sense. The evidence is there, let's just shift from A to B. Um, like anybody, we tend to uh, take our, our faith becomes a part of our identity. Whenever your identity is threatened, uh, then one naturally becomes defensive. And so I uh, sought out apologetic resources that, that would try to respond to some of these claims within the tradition that I was in and uh, it just didn't seem to, to respond adequately enough to fend off what I had read that was critical. And so it was a time period where I had to make that transition. And it wasn't an easy one. And I, I will say that I don't think many times Christians appreciate the challenge that is involved uh, for people who do make uh, faith journeys from one to the other. You, many times we just think we will preach the gospel People will respond, they get born again, and boom, we just plug them into our churches. 
And having looked at uh, this, the academic literature on conversions from one tradition to another, they don't happen a whole lot, but they do, and they can be very difficult and many times very painful. Um, one can lose family members, uh, relationships are damaged, jobs might be damaged. There's a sense of loss of identity. You have to create a new identity. Who am I in this new context? And so there's all kinds of variables. And I went through some of that. I didn't lose any family members, but they were strained as a result of my faith shift. And I just think we have to be aware that while we, we all are trying to be persuasive about our religious traditions, we all believe they're true and they're the best, otherwise we wouldn't be in them. But when we ask people to consider uh, accepting Christ and following his way out of another religious tradition that can be a psychologically jarring experience, and it goes far beyond something that we can use uh, Bible study and church attendance as a band-aid for. I really love that comment. I mean, I have a friend who converted from Buddhism across to Christianity, and there's very much that sort of, there's a, there's a rupture within the family because her parents remained Buddhist and still are, um, and there's tension there, and, and the journey is very much an up-and-down experience. From, from that religious tradition across to Christianity. And she speaks of it often. Um, I think that's, that's really awesome to put your finger on that uh, in terms of people who are making that journey. We need to recognize uh, that it can be filled with all sorts of different experiences and not as simple as just shifting your, your chair from one camp to another. Well, and another, if, if I might, might add a PS to that, um, hmm. many times when people do make that transition, and they become an ex, ex-Mormon, ex-pagan, whatever it is, another Christian, mm. the, the, the psychology can become kind of like uh, being divorced. Uh, one yeah. is angry at the ex, if not angry at all women. And many people work through that process and come out the other side. But a lot of times these books that are written for Christians by ex-Mormons on Mormonism as an expose and ex-pagans really reflects the anger of that conversion experience that hasn't been adequately processed yet. So we just need to read these kinds of works uh, with a grain of salt and realize that that being in a religion and converting to another religious tradition is a complex psychological as well as spiritual process. There's a lot of dynamics that are involved. I'm interested in, in, in that process for you because on one hand, there's the engagement with all the critical literature that in a sense, it, it challenges the worldview, it challenges the assumptions that you would have held around Mormonism. But that's not enough to bring you into another uh, faith camp. Uh, you know, I, you know, I don't necessarily like the language of faith camp, but you know, the shift to evangelicalism is, you know, American evangelicalism is quite a quite a boundaryed, you know, faith. It's quite defined in terms of going, yes, who we are, you know, and everyone else is out, you know, outside of the camp. I, I'm imagining that there's some kind of experience of God associated with that as well, and I'm very interested to know what that is. Or if there, or if there isn't, you know, to what you know, there's a there's certainly an interplay between the intellectual new ideas that you that you would be taking on, which paradigms are being swapped out for which paradigms, or you know, which evidence is is you know, unchanging stuff that you're starting to accept as new. But in that, uh, is there an encounter with God? Is there an experience that you went, well, I had this past experience that was real, but this is my new experience, and what is that new experience? Yeah, I think the common element for me between the religious traditions was I, I couldn't let go of my intense interest in the figure of Jesus. Mm. And, and it, that continues today, even if someone were to 
you know, so, you know, you just need to dump this American evangelicalism and grab onto this expression of Christianity or what have you. Um, I'm still fascinated by the figure of Christ in the context of Second uh, Temple Judaism and unpacking all of that and how we can understand him in his context and how that applies today is just fascinating stuff. And so that I held that from one tradition to the other. But it's very interesting. Uh, religious traditions kind of have their own personality, if you will, and, and ways of doing things. And I, I'm generalizing here because there's great diversity in every religious tradition. But I remember having a conversation with a Mormon colleague of mine that I, I still do work with to the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. And uh, he's an active Latter-day Saint. And we were kind of reflecting on each other's religious community. And he, uh, I, I told him, I said, you know, I think you're that Mormons are kind of like the artists of religion and spirituality. Um, they produce uh, music and paintings and, and statues and their faith is very much uh, connected to that symbolic element. And he said that that's an interesting observation. He said, if I were to look at you and talk about evangelicals and, and broader Protestants, he said, you folks are, are the philosophers or the scientists of your faith. Everything is about, it, it tends to toward uh, ideas and the abstract and making sure you have the right ideas and this kind of thing. So uh, I, I think there is that within evangelicalism, particularly American evangelicals, where everything is doctrinally oriented. And I don't want to uh, dismiss in totality the importance of doctrine. I think I think biblical teaching is important. However, as you folks are, are I think what's implied in your question is you can't just hang your hat simply on that. There has to be an experience of yeah. God in there somewhere. Yeah, very much. And so. Uh, so, so as much as I appreciate uh, the rational, I can I do academic as well as uh, popular level work. I, I appreciate the experience of God in addition to uh, the intellectual and the academic. I mean, uh, I uh, enjoy listening to uh, Gregorian chants. Uh, even though I'm a Protestant and uh, I do find uh, the crucifix a fascinating uh, uh, material object that can stimulate one's worship as one reflects upon uh, the experience of the crucified and risen Christ. So there, there are aspects of my experience of God that are certainly an important part of how I live my, my spiritual life that I had to reconnect with and develop in a new way after coming out of my former faith tradition. And and if I can if I could be so bold as just to, as to push you on that, sure. I love it as a diplomatic answer that embraces both. But your 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 initial experience is a heart warmed experience, you know, in relation to praying and going, you know, is the Book of Mormon real? But your experience of God, you know, just so so you you approach it. There's this fascination with Christ. There's a there's a there's a lot of I I assume. Together with those questions, there was a lot of processing that went on with you. What was the engagement with God like through that for you? Like, is there something, are there things that you can point to and put your finger on and, and talk about? You mean during the tra during that transition process? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of, uh, again, uh, much like that New Testament, uh, that Gospels figure that I mentioned. Uh, Lord, I believe, I, I think I'm, I'm connecting with you now in a way that I didn't before but I'm still plagued by doubt. And so uh, I, and I was really worried about that uh, in the sense that is it okay with God if I have faith, but it's not something where I can have a complete certitude because I was uh, attending churches uh, where that was expected, that, that 
you know, if you're trusting in Christ, then, then there shouldn't be any doubt. That was a sin, and I was riddled with doubt. I, I've since come to the place that, that I can hold on to both. E- even though I've been a Christian for many years, I'm involved in, in doing uh, Christian ministry and this kind of thing. Um, there are things that, that I, I continue to wrestle with and, and try and think through, and I've changed my opinions about certain aspects of, of Christian uh, doctrine and experience and so on over the years. So I think that's a healthy place to be in where one, uh, it, it may sound like an oxymoron, but you're, you're at the same time, you're exercising confidence, but yet a healthy dose of skepticism and open-mindedness at the same time. And so my, my experience of God was, God, I, I, I believe you're there. Uh, I think this is where you want me to be. Um, but at the same time, I'm not quite sure. And I hope you're okay with that. And uh, so there was a lot of prayer and uh, a lot of uh, reading scripture in a prayerful, meditative kind of way, trying to unpack all that and just hope that, uh, that over time that, that I would be led in the appropriate direction to help me unravel that. Did, did God respond to that question in any sort of first person way? As you say, you know, God help me in my, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I trust that you are there, you know, as I, as I hear what you're saying, I'm just badly paraphrasing, forgive me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think early on, I, it was, uh, really what I did was I, I made the, the mistake in terms of a logical mistake of putting faith in new experts. I was struggling, I was doubting. Uh, for example, I, I thought, well, maybe this historic, Jesus wasn't even historical, maybe he was just a made up figure. Uh, and so I wrestled with that for a while, but then I'm reading a, a scholars like FF, the late F.F. Bruce and so on. And, and they would go into that and would say, well, if a scholar like F.F. Bruce thinks Jesus was historical, who am I to doubt it? Right. So it was kind of a transfer of intellectual authority. I can stand on that. But I eventually had to grow to the place where uh, just because uh, scholar or scientist uh, X says this doesn't necessarily make it so. And so uh, I finally came to the place where I was able to let go of my doubt um, it, it wasn't any kind of uh, uh, voice that was heard or anything like that. It was just a, a feeling of certainty. So in a sense, I came back to the emotional component. Um, it's certainly not there, but I think it, it coexists with more interest and concern for uh, the rational component of my faith. The recognition of there being you know, people that have valid experiences and that confirms their worldview to them. You know, I, I feel like like looking back in terms of in terms of the history, we we came from Christendom where there was only really one faith and everything was discounted, and then we kind of arrive at this place, you know, with the first Council of Parliament of World Religions and others, which I think historically is where there's 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 definitely a turning point in history and the dialogue between religions and the emergence of something new. You know, are you able to to comment on that and your thoughts around that at all? You mean in terms of uh, how, how would a how might a Christian navigate that kind of uh, renewed sense of pluralism and the, the fracturing of Christendom? Less less so that I, I feel like a lot of a lot of Christians think from that perspective, but a lot of people that I engage with are people that have deconverted to their faith towards a secularism, if not an atheism, and so their re-exposure and their re-engagement with with, with religion is is from a more uh, you know, postmodern or a, or post-secular foundation, where they're interested not just in the rational meaning of stuff, but in the validity of the who or the what that we can encounter when we use words like God. 
So there's there's almost a there's a transition. A lot of Christian apologetic material, I feel, is 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 still rooted in the in the our faith is is right, and we're the only ones that have real experience. If other people have real experience, they the ones that are being deceived. There isn't that kind of intellectual subtlety that that you're, for instance, bringing to the table. And I think anyone that that has transitioned to a missiological environment or a missiological framework or a pluralistic framework understands that 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 people have have these experiences and they have these beliefs and and the two coexist and they understand that it goes together as a package but but historically there's a shift in that in the dialogue between the religions and this interfaith thing is quite a is quite a quite a new thing so somewhere in that I, ha I, I had a question that I was trying to push you towards, but I realized I, I lost where I was going in terms of just uh, grappling with uh, articulating that. So, <laughs> well, yeah, let me let me throw a few thoughts out, and then if it if it results in an answer or not, or maybe a refocused question or what have you, I've been involved in in what I call multi faith engagement rather than interfaith for many years, and there's a, I'm very purposeful in my use of this particular terminology, interfaith. Um, uh, again, in general, tends to look more at commonality rather than difference. And I'm certainly interested in the common areas where all the religious traditions can find common ground. But at the same time, I recognize that there are, are significant differences. And I think one of the weaknesses of interfaith can be to ignore those important differences. Uh, Stephen Prothero is a religion professor, and he calls that naive theological groupthink, the idea that Religious traditions, basically, if you boil them down, all teach the same thing. And in uh, one of his books, God is Not One, he points out he, the different religious traditions and how there are fundamental uh, disagreements there. So we, we have to, if we're going to address uh, the conflict that is rooted in or at least uh, aided by religious disagreement, we have to recognize not only commonality, but also religious difference. So I'm very much involved in relationships and conversations across religious traditions on my podcast i've had conversations with uh sikhs and hindus and uh, secular humanists and mormons and uh, most recently over the last year or two i've had a relationship with a member of uh the uh, satanic temple and and so i'm not i'm not afraid or threatened by any means to have these kinds of conversations and i recognize aspects of truth within these religious traditions but at the same time i'm also aware and they are as well uh, of our disagreements and that uh, uh, our religious disagreements are significant. They need to be accounted for, but they also need to be worked through in respectful kinds of ways because we have to share the neighborhood. We've got to share the planet. And uh, so one of the things we do in religious diplomacy is uh, work through these things in relationship, in ongoing conversation to hold it in a peaceful tension through disagreement, much as a husband and wife might do who have foundationally different ideas about things that are very important to them and to their identity, but if they wanna maintain their relationship and their marriage, um, they have to wait, find a way to argue about it uh, more productively. So we don't try to get, do away with religious disagreement. I don't believe in conflict resolution so much as conflict management. Um, it, it can be a healthy thing to disagree over important foundational things, but it has to be done in the right way Otherwise, we do damage to ourselves and to the others and to those that, that we're living with. So I, I don't know if that answers much of your question, but that religious diplomacy approach is one that I have found uh, very helpful in, in dealing uh, with uh, other religious traditions that want their place in the public square with the decline of Christendom. John, that's, that's helpful. I'd, I'd love to just, um, just 
pro poke something within that in terms of your response, if I may. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll use the term research somewhat loosely for the purpose of okay. framing this, this question. In, in Tim and my, in my experience so far in, in the sort of, in what I think he's going is, is pointing towards research as, as we engage with numerous people from different backgrounds. And I think specifically what Tim is trying to put his finger on is, is people in kind of a post secular space, people who've deconstructed away from religious traditions but are still very much interested in mystical engagement. Let me call it that for now. There, there is the sense of outside of just a system of beliefs or a religious tradition that has ritual practice, history, etc. that there is this who or what, this, this mystical experience, this, this you know, divine personhood, uh, there's a number of different ways in which you can describe this thing that we try to boil down to to the three-letter word God, right? Um, mm -hmm. And and that people are 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 seeking that out and seem to be having experiences, and it it doesn't matter across which religious tradition they're coming from. There seems to be some commonality around. Now, let me be careful, not necessarily some commonality <laughs> around the actual experiences, but commonality around their being experience, mm -hmm. whatever that might be. And so I, I just, I'm interested in, in your response. Would that go hand in hand with what, what you'd said earlier in terms of a skepticism around the interaction with internal psychology as opposed to actually experience of the transcendent, the divine, whatever we want to call it? Or, you know, in your conversations with people in, in many different faith traditions and in what you're describing, this, this dialogical um, connection with people of very many different traditions, are you picking up any of that, that people beyond just a, you know, a, a rule of life, a faith-based system with, within which to live and, and work and operate and find meaning, is there, is there much of that, that seeking and that, and that, that telling of the story of experience that's happening with, with a who or a what, uh, uh, some sort of personhood behind that? Is that, is that clear enough to, to give us some thoughts on? Yeah, I, I've also uh, been interested in the rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, um, those who in response to uh, surveys about what's your religious affiliation, what, what religious group do you identify with, and they'll, they'll select none. And uh, a segment of those are atheists, but uh, a large number are folks who are simply uh, moving beyond traditional institutional religion and are interested in an individualized kind of spiritual quest. But I am seeing it's interesting in following different uh, research groups that are looking more closely at secularism. There is this interesting segment of secularism that's interested in pursuing a, a non-theistic, non-religious form of spirituality. In fact, um, the, the Satanist uh, gentleman, uh, Stephen Bradford Long, I've been a guest on his podcast, and we've done some projects together. As an atheist, uh, he is interested in exploring what an atheist spirituality might be, look, might, what it might look like, what would it entail, by not encountering, not seeking to encounter a transcendent being, but just to have some kind of spiritual life which he would understand as being essential to being human. And, and he and I would agree with that. Um, now, I do think all human, one of the other areas I've looked at that I find fascinating is looking at the cognitive science of religion. What is it about the structures of the brain and the way in which the brain has evolved and the impact of different cultures on the development of the brain that, that has basically human beings are wired for 
an experience with God or gods or, or religion, whatever term you want to use. So I am not surprised at all that human beings across uh, the spectrum in different cultures and different religions are having some kind of experience that we would call religious or spiritual. I think that's a part of our cognitive wiring. Where, where it gets more difficult is how does one interpret that? Um, and that's where the different ideas of the religious traditions and, the, and our cultures and different things, that's where through those lenses, we start to understand what that is that we're, we think we're experiencing very differently. So it's a complex and difficult issue, but I, I do think there's legitimately there's legitimation to the idea that people are, are wired and having some kind of religious experience. Uh, years ago, there was, uh, the, there was a, a media uproar over the God center in the brain where a scientist developed some kind of special apparatus where if he provided, I can't remember if it was electrical or magnetic stimulation to this part of the brain, that the individual, the test subject, uh, thought they were experiencing God. They said, well, look, see, we've explained it. It's simply the stimulation of this part of the brain, and it's not really a God experience. From my vantage point, I am not surprised at all that they discovered that part of the brain. Um, if human beings are able to interact with something beyond themselves that we would call religious, it would have to go through our, our physical being to do so. And the fact that one can stimulate that part of it and simulate some kind of experience of the transcendent doesn't mean that one isn't in all instances able to encounter something beyond the brain. So uh, again, that's just one example of how I think we need to keep an open mind as to what's going on. And But I don't know that it follows that everybody who's claiming to have a spiritual experience is necessarily, we're still gonna have disagreement over what that what that means and what that is. That's where the challenge comes in because we can recognize that as relational persons, we can relate to other persons, we can relate to ideas. And when experience is induced to us, whether it's through uh, drugs or through, you know, uh, like a like a cognitive break or an external stimulation like that, we can then we can then feel that there's something that we're interacting with, which we might not be, but it, it, it just you know it's induced experience occurring within us, induced or manipulated, right? So so there there are definitely definitely all those categories. But I think there's a there's a peculiarity that takes place between I, I guess the essentialist and the constructivist in terms of, of of how people then interpret that or what they come down to, you know, where where some people lean towards the idea of going, yes, we experience a something, but it tends towards you know, but when we get into it, we go that something is then just layered through different symbols or different ideas. So mm-hmm. so Christians experience a something whether it's an idea, whether it's induced in them, whether it's something real, uh, whether they're making it up or, you know, they're just deluded. And then they attribute that experience to being God or Christ. Right, right. The Buddhist similarly has an experience. They're experiencing the same thing. It takes place exactly within the same areas of the brain as the person, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But are they actually experiencing sunyata or are they, you know, or, or is it just the delusion, you know, the, the sense that you're experiencing something? And I think the problem in many ways in religion is that the relational other isn't always as easily accessible for us to point to. You know, if if a married couple are getting together and they're falling in love with each other, you know, or, you know, two individuals meet and one person's falling in love with another person, we, we've got the other person available we can always check to see whether that person is just becoming delusional or whether there's a relation you know relational growth from both points of view you know both people are moving towards each other in love but when it comes to the whole to the question of of, of god or the transcendent 
we don't have the other as easily accessible. And that's really where uh, I love your earlier distinction between in terms of the inner experience, what's going on in the inner experience. And, and I'm wondering how we can better move to places of understanding the, that inner experience and the degree to which that inner experience is an engagement with the other or it's an engagement with the self or, you know, the degree to which, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to look at people like, you know, Darren Brown and others as mentalists who can induce people, manipulate, you know, induce experience manipulatively or, you know, some of the dodgy cults and, you know, uh, you know, the fake miracles and, um, you know, psychological tricks that people use. But if we just leave those aside as, as outliers, you know, as, you know, stage or theater magicians inducing things and, you know, just consider the stuff that's le legitimate, you know, in, in this multi-faith dialogue environment, how is the conversation producing along, you know, progressing along this line? Because I'm very, I'm very interested in the who, the what and the who we experience, because I feel like that's largely been absent in conversations when I've, when, when I've been involved in those circles. And I find it very often absent within the Christian environment as well. So one of the ideas that we've teased out for this as a series, and that we're kind of like poking at in, in these conversations, is that we've got this longstanding tension between faith and experience in our, in our faith. Which, which if we think of it practically, it actually plays out as a tension between faith and relationship, because you don't have a relationship with someone apart from experiencing them. You can rem remember the idea of them. And in many situations, I, I feel like within Christianity, that's what we're getting into. We're getting into the remembrance of a Jesus that we can construct by faith through the Bible, but our inner experiences with the idea of Jesus or the idea of God, it's not necessarily with the, with the person that draws near in person to speak and act. And I, you know, I'm wondering, um, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, man, that's a, a lot to unpack there. But uh, uh, let me say, as a result of uh, uh, my experience over the years and interacting with, with others, and I did uh, two grants uh, through the Louisville Institute to look at why American evangelicals tend to have such negative uh, emotional responses towards people in other religious traditions, particularly Muslims. And that's when social psychology and cognitive neuroscience came on my radar. And so as best as I can, as a non-psychologist and, and not a scientist, I've been reading uh, the academic literature. And I, I think if, if Christians are going to be at the forefront of understanding uh, what's going on today? I think we've we've got to enter. We've got to bring our theology into conversation with the sciences, particularly psychology and neuroscience, and try and understand what's going on in these things. And I think you're onto something there in terms of the uh, uh, the idea that we have about something versus the experience of something. And I think that experience and relationship is significant. In, in fact, uh, I think we uh, American evangelicals in particular we tend to do it wrong, if you will. We give people, here's a gospel invitation, and once they say they have embraced it intellectually, we, we welcome them into fellowship. When if you look at how human beings are wired, and you look at how it has worked historically, it is within the context of relationship that people come to embrace new ideas and new concepts and new worldview. So we ought to be extending fellowship and relationship first, and then helping them explore what that might look like from a Christian perspective. So I think relationship is key. And if that's the way things work on a human level, 
I think to a certain extent, we need to step back and say, what, what place does relationship and experience with God creating space for that so that we can shape and reshape uh, the ideas that we have about who God is and, and what he expects of us. So I don't, I don't know if that's an adequate response, but that's what's coming to mind. I must say, I love that as a response, especially especially with you land on that, you know, that that is as relational beings, you know, I think we've often seen that that people belong before they believe. And, yes. and depending on how hospitable in the environment is, people can then get chased out before they come to believe. And that 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 happens, yeah. You know, I've you know we've all seen that happen. I'm sure in in, in many ways, and that's not really <laughs> that's not really an avenue I'm going to go down because I get very bleak and very angry along those lines. Often, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen I've seen a lot of people start off with a with a very real uh, engagement with God, but in terms of trying to land at home, I feel like there's a there's a current within Christianity that makes doing church central. And then doing church right. is not is not real community on one level, but then on another level, it's not hospitable to people who don't believe right and don't behave right in the way that they, right. in the way in which someone who is raised from birth within the faith is, you know, um, people just aren't housebroken often, you know, when they when they change <laughs> when they change faith, and so so often that's more the dividing line, but then on the other hand, I, I feel like in many christian environments we're actually stuck on the level of belief in the idea of christ which can be politicized in whichever way the group uses and i use politicized quite loosely in terms of the agenda of the group not necessarily uh just in the way i think uh, you know as an outsider i see american evangelicalism being politicized also within you know national politics you know so i'm not, i'm not just referring to it in that sense and it's it's very hard to 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 move beyond that you know or to move to the place of going within this environment people are so schooled into a particular or a, or a narrow view but then how do they move from that towards a deepening relational engagement and what do we build on you know so something we've we've often commented on here is the sense that if i if i unpack it and triangulate the relational dynamics that are going on and say that god is a someone that someone engages engages and i want to draw that on one end of the spectrum and then there's you know there's a there's the human to divine engagement and then there's the human to human in terms of their moving into a faith often what happens is is it's a very small sliver of faith that someone believes on whether someone converts to mormonism on on the single experience of waking up and my heart was strangely warmed and now i give myself to the faith alive and become a missionary or you know that, that's often the equivalent of you know within the evangelical and the born again sphere of you know, I've said the sinner's prayer, I've given my life to Jesus, I, I woke up with a sense of peace and, and love for my neighbor, and I've given my, my life to the faith. That relational engagement component, if we accept either of those as a relational engagement with a someone else that's got a confirming experience or a, you know, endearing uh, change of heart or mind within an individual, they're not necessarily building on that. They're, they're doing a lot of doing church and doing religion, and they're developing their idea of God in relation to their faith, but they're not necessarily building upon that, that relational engagement per se. I'd love to see more of more in the context of faith where that actually happens than what I find, because I feel like we don't, we don't add to it. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm just sounding like a crazy person to you. If you've got some thoughts around that. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I agree. I do have some concerns about uh, ecclesiology, the construction of how we do church. Mm. Um, 
they're, they're, uh, this picked up during the pandemic, but churches, as you know, have been losing uh, members, uh, yeah. mm. including in America, where Christian identification is very high. Mm. Um, in addition to the nuns, there's another sociological group where research mm. has been done called the duns. Mm. And these are people who uh, have Christian identity uh, and still retain that, but they have left traditional churches because they find it harmful to the maintenance of their Christian spirituality. Mm. And these aren't just, uh, you, you can't frame these folks as, uh, you know, people who've just lost their faith or, you know, we tend mm. to blame the, those who leave and characterize them. Why aren't they churched anymore? Um, mm. That kind of terminology. These, these many times are the best and brightest of our churches. They tend to be those yeah. who are giving the most, who have been involved in leadership. Mm. And yet they find mm. the, the experience of going to church to be problematic and harmful to their Christian faith. And so they're mm. exploring uh, various other facets, whether it's, it's house churches or I find the, the dinner church concept fascinating. Mm. I read a book by Alan Street, who looked at, uh, took a fresh look at the nature of communion within the uh, first century Greco-Roman context of the early church. And it wasn't just bread and wine or grape juice and crackers. It was a, a full-blown meal. And so the church across classes, there was no class uh, uh, recognition there, men and women, uh, people across classes came together, slave and free, enjoyed a common meal with Christ at the center, and they would sing hymns and have prayer and have a time of, of discussion uh, about Jesus based upon the scriptures and their experience and everything else. I just think that kind of model mm. is far more promising than the go to church, sit on the pew, stand and sing when you're told to, listen to an inspirational sermon, mm. and then go have your quiet times the rest of the week until you come back next week. Um, I really think ecclesiology many times is impoverished and we need to rethink what, what does it mean to be a disciple and what place and what form does worship take as a result, particularly in light of uh, the dramatic challenges that churches are facing today. I personally move towards communion as a meal and of conversation around that rather than, you know, anything else. And I, uh, and it's it's been interesting seeing the interplay between how people are so schooled into doing church that at a certain point in size of of a gathering like that, it quickly transitions back to those classic dynamics of uh, you know when are we going to start and you know it's, you know Tim or whoever else is around you've got to kick this off and make it happen now as opposed to the 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 the, the genuine life giving and nurturing interaction that people are often having and the real conversations you know, that, they, that, that they're having around the table, whether it's in, in smaller, you know, clusters or as a broad conversation or whatever it is. And, and it's, yeah, I think, I think it's been interesting seeing how, how strongly churches, well, I guess on one hand, how easily churches have just transitioned to just going, let's do it online, which is quite interesting because we can often package everything in doing church into an online service, which, which I think, evidence is the degree to which the way we our ecclesiology is not relational and it's 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 uh it's a spectator event rather than a dynamic participatory event and and, and i do i do think that a lot of done certainly those that I've, I've been speaking to there's a lot of people that i know that are just going you know we're not coming back to this <laughs> you know they're, they're either transitioning right. completely to the online or they're actually transitioning to going well we don't need this at all you know we haven't missed it <laughs> and, and feeling like what they miss is the relationships and they can have that without doing church
Yeah, I mean, part of the problem, and I think you hinted at it uh, earlier in our conversation, is many times the church is providing answers for questions that people aren't asking. Um, I, I remember years ago, I think it was in the UK, they came out with the Alpha program. And I remember looking at that even then, I think it was, might have been back in the 90s. And they were providing answers that the church thought people should be asking. And they were providing answers to that. And, and then they would quickly funnel them from those experiences in small groups into the broader church. And uh, I don't know that Alpha is even being used anymore. I just don't think we, we've just got to go back and have conversations with people and find out where they're itching and try and provide scratches for that rather than what we think people should be. So I, I think we very much are locked in, in old assumptions. There was an interesting dynamic that 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 I, I observed because, uh, I mean, I, I've run probably about a dozen Alpha courses <laughs> myself over the years, and I felt two things. It works very well for people that are raised Christian. The, and it ans- and it was answering questions for them, but it wasn't working well for people who weren't or for people who'd moved from a Christian to almost like a secular framework and then approach Christianity as though it's one religion amongst many. It didn't answer that. So, so years right. ago, I, I, I produced a, a seminar and a series around the problem of God and took people around to different religions, et cetera, et cetera. And Christians fought with me about that because they felt that Alpha was the only thing that you could do. You know, there's only one approach to evangelism and, you know, it's either the four spiritual laws or, or it's, it's been superseded by Alpha. And so that, that there was interesting controversy around that. But I've often found that, that, that churches want the people coming in. But a big reason why Alpha was successful was the experience of God in the weekend away. But then when people come to church, they basically go, we've got no place for this. Our tradition doesn't do this. And if we could, we would want to eliminate that Holy Spirit encounter stuff from Alpha anyway. And so there's an interesting dynamic there that I'd still love to, you know, have a broader conversation with more people about. But I was wondering if you've observed anything like that as well. Yeah, definitely. In fact, I encountered Alpha after I had uh, taken a trip over to Australia some colleagues were doing some creative interaction with uh, uh, New Age adherents at New Age festivals, not by going in and creating a Christian booth with a big old cross and here's a New Testament. Uh, there was one of those kinds of booths there when I went, but they contextualized it. They, gave, uh, they, uh, they used a, a certain uh, brand of tarot cards, which has biblical imagery on it, and they were able to uh, present the gospel through tarot cards and, and this type of thing. Um, I've got a colleague, uh, Phil Wyman, uh, who's done some ministry in Salem, Massachusetts in the United States, which has a high uh, number of uh, pagans and witches, and he's done some very creative interaction with them. And so this form of missiological, listen to the culture, uh, communicate and incarnate the Christian life through appropriate cultural forms, that was kind of the lens that I used to, to look at Alpha and when I looked at it, I didn't look at it in much depth. They, they were considering bringing it over to the United States and the church I was involved in at the time. It just didn't seem to me like it was doing its cultural homework appropriately. Mm-hmm. It, it seemed like uh, it, it had a, a set of assumptions about what people needed to hear related to Christianity, and they were going to provide those answers to those questions, regardless of whether or not attendees were bringing those questions. And so... Uh, because of my missiological framework and trying to, to listen carefully to where people were coming from and communicate in their cultural forms, I just I, I never saw things like Alpha uh, to be a helpful way forward. So I, I really think we just need to, to listen to people in, in the cultural context in which we live and serve 
and try and approach them through those cultural dynamics. Interestingly enough, in the actual relating person to person in the small groups within the alpha environment, in my experience, that's where you could see that most, most pointedly in the, the breakdown of, of this, this paradigm that's presented. And as you say, you know, the questions that are not being asked. And then you break into the small group and people who are coming from a number of different walks of life were asking strange and weird and different questions. And I use strange and weird and different as opposed to the paradigm of alpha, which was very set. It's going to be ABC and then we're done. And you could see the ways in which that group leaders had been trained. They were just completely not ready and unprepared to be able to, to answer some of these questions or to engage with people at least. I mean, forget answer. Actually, I realize as I say that, that's just falling back into the alpha paradigm because that's very much where it's set up as an apologetic structure. And the group leaders were just unable to relate to people and go, that's a fascinating question. I don't know. Let's explore together or, you know, where does that come from? Or let's, let's share relationship a little bit more because it didn't fit the alpha structure. And that was very pointed for me in terms of how, how alpha was not matching um, culturally to, to, to the context in which it was trying to, to enter into. Uh, very different to, you know, what I, what I hear you describing, John, is far more sort of a Celtic expression, if I think about the fifth and sixth century yes. sort of expressions of Celtic evangelism, which is move into an area and learn the context and embed um, that for me is very much a leading edge in terms of missiology and, and incarnating into that space with people. I find generally, you know, if you if you look at that kind of stuff, m most people prepared for the ministry are prepared for running church. They're not prepared missiologically. So if anyone if anyone starts thinking or majors in missiology, you're often at odds with people that just want to pick up a program and want to pick up a tried and tested program. And that that was certainly my experience years ago, because <laughs> with my undergrad degree, my, my focus was missiology. So, so as much as I, I appreciated Alpha, I found that churches wanted to run that because it had this pedigree, but they would fight with me over what I was doing. They just wanted the people. <laughs> you, you know, back in the day, I was one of the people that looked at, you know, the, the new agey postmodern subculture and, and really said that the questions are different. So like, how do we answer those questions that people are actually asking? And how do we bring them to a place of, of actually relationally engaging God? Because that's actually what's central over just what do they believe? And I found that just just in general, I was surrounded by Christians who were so hostile and resistant to that at all. <laughs> you know, I remember, I remember uh, at one stage working with one group that was very much into the healing rooms. I don't know if you know the healing rooms. No. So, so the healing rooms is, is is interesting in the sense that they they operate a bit like a doctor's consultancy, where they, you know, someone will come along who has a, a need or wants to engage God. And then they'll have two people who all, all they do is they get the name for the person and they're going to wait on God to hear from God for them. And in that context, often people, they get very clear prophetic words for people, like in the sense of going, you know, someone has a revelation about someone that they don't know and goes, here's what God has shown me is what's going on in your life. Or here's what God wants to heal or speak to you about or whatever. And they've, they've, they've been very successful along those lines. And I remember encountering a group like that and thinking that we could work together and going for lunch with them. <laughs> and they sat down <laughs> and they looked at me, the eyes went all slanted and narrow, you know, that hostile look. And then literally hissed and went, Tim, when do you tell these people about sin? <laughs> and at that point, I knew that there was going to be no way we were going to work together in future. And it was quite funny. I'm not saying that all the 
all the healing rooms people were like that, but certainly the ones that I'd, I'd interacted with back in those days, I, I realized that uh, we weren't going to see eye to eye. And they were very much into, you know, there's, there's a difference between Christians are often schooled very polemically into evangelism. So, so that anti-cult worldview, I remember being so exposed to it when I, when I was young and then trying to get past it and then getting into trouble for it. I remember it was, uh, it was my matric year. There was, uh, I was staying with this this couple, uh, you know, kind of being fostered for the last year of, of of my of my school experience, and they were so fundamentalist, and they went into those Chick Publications comics. I'm sure you know them, John. Those, oh uh, yes, are those they, they, <laughs> and one of them was on how all Catholics were going to hell, and they were so strong about this. And I, I and and I just had questions because this just doesn't make sense. You know, Protestantism is a break with Catholicism, but you know, whatever. So I tried to actually have a conversation with a Catholic person. And that was, that was one of the things that I, that I always did that you don't talk just about people and their faith. You actually talk to people who have different faiths. And I remember going to her and going, this one Catholic girl that I knew and saying, these, these other people have shoved this comic to me. And, you know, they're saying this about Catholicism, but I want to understand. And she took that to mean that I was saying that she was going to hell. And I remember getting into trouble over that and never quite being able to get out of that. But that was largely just because that's, there's a <laughs> cultural thing as well. You quick, you can very quickly get associated with the culture just because you're, you're you're trying to ask questions you're trying to break a break from within it and it can be very difficult and so for people that are very locked into an, an evangelical polemical kind of framework how, how would you help them get out of that and how would you help them get out of being associated with that into getting to a space where they can have more respectful conversations more hospitable conversations and particularly ones that are are more focused on relational engagement with God rather than just, you know, what do you believe? What do I believe? And how do we fight about it? I'm still trying to work that out. But uh, I can tell you that uh, after making the shift years ago out of an apologetic kind of mindset to a more relational, missional, dialogical approach, that that I experienced strong resistance from uh, many segments of the evangelical uh, community. In fact, so much so that at, at times I was questioned as to whether or not I was a genuine Christian or you spent time talking to pagans. Uh, maybe he's really a pagan or he might be a Mormon because he has friendly conversations with Mormons, this kind of thing. I was once accused of being a Satanist because I've got every religious text in my bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's it's a, I understand it. I mean, it's it's a defensive approach, and and you understand there's only there's one appropriate way of doing it. And if others go too far, then uh, they're they're seen as off the reservation, and you have to question that. So, um, when I started doing this kind of approach, at first I tried to uh, reach out uh, with great intensity to those who had this very strong. Uh, apologetic and, and evan rigid evangelistic kind of approach and just got so much resistance without seeing a whole lot of fruit, um, I turned my attention instead to trying to model for those evangelicals and other Christians that are already uh, wired to see the benefit in being neighborly and hospitable and relational without compromising my Christian convictions in doing so. In fact, I think I've got a, a pretty good uh, darn good uh, theological justification for what I do. I think it flows out of a cruciform spirituality that, that was the, you know, at the center of Pauline, uh, Paul's uh, theology. And so what I try and do is simply model it. This is what it looks like. Um, if, if you think this is a positive way forward, here's how I have conversations with Muslims and Satanists and atheists and so on. 
and you can do it too. And uh, if, if you would like, I would be happy to come alongside you and walk with you and help, uh, help you do this so that you can do it yourself. And so I think all we can do is just model. And I really think it, it's a paradigm shift. People have to have the experience that it's okay to do something different, to do it in a different way, that it doesn't, rec doesn't necessarily mean compromise. And then once they begin to experience that paradigm shift and raise questions about, well, what about this? then I think they're more open to answers that will respond to those common objections to doing it a different kind of way. So through my writing and my podcast and the public uh, dialogues that I do, I'm simply trying to model for those who already have an open mind. And if we can persuade some others who uh, aren't happy with what we're doing, that's great. But for right now, I'm hoping to build a, a sufficient groundswell of Christians who want to do it a different and more neighborly and I think more Christ-like kind of way. I love that. And, you know, John, you're talking about doing things differently and you've, you've mentioned landing in evangelicalism and then you talked a little bit about different expressions of church and community. Um, where, where are you now in terms of church, community, ecclesiology? Where have you landed? What does that look like for you in your journey? Well, I kind of, uh, I am at the place where I really identify with the Duns. I've had some very bad experiences with Christian churches. Um, I had one church that was uh, my largest, it was my home church for many years, and they were my largest uh, mission supporter uh, for the work that I do. And um, because I didn't meet their criteria, um, which was a body count, an evangelistic body count, um, I, I define success by faithfulness to, to a way of doing things, a way of being, rather than do, how many converts have you seen. And because uh, the mission committee uh, had somebody from Campus Crusade for Christ who was on the committee and was very influential. Um, eventually, uh, they were persuaded to drop me in financial support. And uh, I've had that happen in other congregations I've been involved in. I'm kind of at the place today where I, I feel like I experience the presence of God and the spirit more in my day-to-day -day conversations with people in other religious traditions, as well as like-minded Christians than I do going into the average church. Now, I don't want to be understood as uh, John Moorhead is saying, don't go to church. He's against churches. That, that's not the case at all. If you're, if you're experiencing God in your church context, God bless you. But I, I'm at the place where I, I don't find it spiritually edifying to simply go and to listen to a sermon and sing a hymn and give my tithe. I find doing God's mission in the world and meeting the spirit where he is already at work, I find that far more satisfying spiritually. And uh, that's how I live my Christian life. So judge me if you will, listeners, but uh, that, that's where I am. <laughs> I, I think this evening, or at least on our side, it's evening, uh, you're in safe company in terms of that. <laughs> You've been judged quite uh, quite positively, I must say. So let's uh, well, <laughs> let's, let's let's be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to say earlier when when you said that you like the the you know the, the, the crucifix, I said uh, I was thinking that uh, I like performative spirituality. So do you prefer the IKEA version or do you like the uh, <laughs> or the preassembled version? But I <laughs> I felt like that was a bit too <laughs> too facetious to to throw out then. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, an interesting real quick story about the crucifix um, that I have. I, I stumbled across a controversy on the Internet 
that happened a few years ago in connection with the crucifix that um, is utilized sometimes by the current pope. And he grabbed onto a crucifix that was used by a prior pope that was controversial back then. And it's, it's uh, considered controversial by some conservative Catholics because it has a very thin, emaciated Christ on the cross. It's very stylized. And the concern of some conservative Christians was, and I couldn't believe it when I read it, that this Christ looks too weak. Um, it looks, one, one critic said he looks like an Auschwitz victim. And they preferred a more muscular, robust Christ on the cross. And I'm sure you've seen those, those memes of the muscle bodybuilding Jesus on the cross, breaking the cross and, you know, this kind of a thing. And to me, that just completely misses the mark. I mean, here we have the centrality of the gospel message is that uh, God, through Christ, uh, defeats the powers of death and sin through the weakness of Christ on the cross and in the power of his resurrection and through humility and service and these kinds of things. And so I think Catholics many times wrestle with the same thing that American evangelicals do. We really haven't understood and embraced what a cruciform Christian life is all about. And so instead we want things uh, like, uh, you know, the muscle bound Jesus. So I, I'm quite happy to have a small controversial uh, crucifix um, because I, I find great power in that figure of weakness on the cross. Thinking back to my, to my much younger years and early days within, uh, you know, associating, you know, self-identifying as a Christian, they, they had uh, huge tension with people around the crucifix in the sense that like, oh my goodness, you know, those people, they still have Jesus on the cross. <laughs> Our cross is empty. And, and my immediate response is, well, the cross isn't there anymore anyway. So like, what are you on about? <laughs> to which uh, they, 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 they responded that clearly I hadn't had a proper conversion yet. So <laughs> <laughs> There's many ways, Tim, in which you're just showing yourself up to not have had a proper conversion. I mean, <laughs> John, as a follow-up to what I asked in terms of where you've landed church-wise, um, I'd, I'd love to ask just a little bit, you know, when, when you talked earlier about conversion experiences of people from, you know, one religious tradition to another, etc., and that that's not just a clear-cut journey, and there are many ups and downs, what has this been like in terms of your experience within your immediate sort of family, your immediate circle, as you have moved through, as you've come to this new space that you've just detailed just now. Has that been a similar sort of up and down experience? Has that been a, a process of grieving losses? Um, whether that's just, you know, moving from a, a, some sort of established system to another, uh, tensions, difficulties with families, has, has that been a part of your experience as well that you described? you know, somewhat abstractly and, and happening to others, has that had also been embodied within you as you've had to, to navigate those waters? Yeah, there, there have been some. There were some at uh, that Christian church that I mentioned that I called home for many years, my wife and I and our family, and some of those relationships uh, disappeared, but, but some uh, stayed and, and got even stronger. Um, but I've been privileged uh, to come across uh, others in uh, Christian ministry, uh, walking a similar path that I do, and I consider them some of my, my deepest friends. In fact, um, uh, a lot of those folks uh, worked with me on those two grant processes, and, and we had meetings, and we would share uh, our various uh, works and ministries and conversations and relationships with people in different religious traditions, and they were having the same kinds of struggles 
uh, and times of encouragement in their context that I was having in mind. And uh, that just deepened the bonds of our relationship. So the, the grant, the last grant we did ended a couple of years ago, but uh, we still uh, consider each other uh, great friends and cooperate uh, on other uh, ministry projects and are guests on each other's podcasts and are able to understand each other because uh, because of the different kind of Christian discipleship and life that we lead. So um, you may lose relationships in one context, but you can always find them in another. And and your present um, areas of interest and in research, what are you what are you working on at the moment? Uh, I would say my primary areas of, of interest are um, I continue to look at uh, neuroscience, the cognitive science of religion. Uh, I'm interested in the social psychology of religion, in particular, what Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist, has called moral foundations. And I'm particularly interested in disgust. Uh, my theory is that the reason why so many conservative Christians uh, have a negative feeling about other religious traditions is because they are afraid of the possibility of spiritual contamination, and therefore they're having a psychological disgust reaction. I want to keep the other at bay so that they don't contaminate me. And then we develop theologies after the fact to justify the emotional response that we've had. And so I'm fascinated by the application of social psychology uh, to this particular subject. I'm very interested in the emotional aspect of faith and not just the, the, the more rational uh, aspect of it. So uh, I've got a, a book that came out looking at, with a number of contributors, looking at different aspects of the emotional aspect. We've looked at orthodoxy. We've looked at orthopraxy, doing the right thing, but we haven't looked at orthopathy. Uh, how should I feel as a Christian about the religious other? And so I continue to, uh, to kind of explore that. And then I'm kicking around of the idea, bouncing it off some colleagues about taking uh, uh, New Testament scholar Michael Gorman's idea about cruciform spirituality and then saying, what would cruciform spirituality look like in practice in relation to the other religions? Um, what does cruciform interpretation of scripture look like? What does a cruciform understanding of Jesus, which may seem redundant, but I really think, again, our idea of Jesus many times doesn't line up with what we see in the New Testament. Um, so how would, how would one relate to and understand people in other religious traditions in a pluralistic world in light of a cruciform spirituality? So I got lots of research interests and uh, I pursue them as best I can with a busy schedule. With the way the story of Christ and, and faith in Christ is told, it's, it's almost like there's an inevitability that Jesus is going to be crucified. That's what we've got to accept, you know, and that's the foundation to a saving faith, blah, 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 which is all, you know, like, like taken as a, almost like that one and done in terms of belief and event and that kind of stuff. But it's not really explored in the sense that, you know, there's a, there's a broad history, a broad human population and throughout the whole, you know, historical period, we're looking back to an event as opposed to it's an event that we don't even know about, you know, historically before that it's an event that people don't necessarily know is coming up, especially in other parts of the world. And so there's a lot of questions that emerge from a pluralistic perspective that are not asked and answered from within the Judeo-Christian historical perspective. And I imagine, I imagine that there's a lot of conversations that you would have had around that, that, uh, you know, in some sense need to come back and be written still and uh, teased out in, in conversation. 
yeah, no, no particular question there. It's just, uh, it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, my head ran off in a direction. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I appreciate that. Let me just mention uh, as kind of a follow to that one, one uh, writer that I also appreciate is Andrew Perriman. And he, uh, his emphasis is on a historical narrative approach to understanding the New Testament where, whereas we tend to, in, in American Christianity in particular, we tend to follow this metaphysic of Jesus came from heaven with the purpose of dying and he died and rose again. And now we have faith in him so that we can escape and go to heaven. And he says, we're, we're so uh, emphasized the, the metaphysic and the theology that we've divorced it many times from the history and the narrative, mm. particularly the idea of Jesus coming and dying for the sins of Israel and what it means for him to be the Messiah. And how does that then connect the dots to Gentiles? And what does it mean outside of its immediate historical context? How does it connect the dots to contemporary 21st century questions, which is what you guys were talking about a moment ago. So I really think there's a lot of assumptions we need to rethink and a lot of questions that need to be answered. But the only way we can do it in our context is if we're willing to question some of the assumptions we brought to it. There's the thought also that all religions are formed in the first axial age. They've all gone through their sacral period. Many are going into their secular period now, but collectively speaking, it's almost like we're going to the post-secular. So is there potential for a second axial age and almost a reconfiguration of, of religion or a new expression of religion, almost a post uh, a post-religious uh, expression, you know, something after religion as we've known it within its particular, you know, like historical context, you know, as opposed to this convergence that is taking place within our society at the moment, you know, because the, the, the convergence is different streams flowing into one. We've got questions going back about the historical and the narrative, not just in relation to Christianity, in relation to Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, etc., etc. You know, anyone today that isn't just born within a framework that hasn't just accepted that and built on that you know but particularly those that are that have deconverted or those that are are, are looking past just the narrative of, of of faith and acceptance of the idea of christ or another faith but looking to going what can i engage today and how meaningful is that i think in some ways there's 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 interesting speculation and trajectories around that you know, um, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Or is that, uh, or is that just uh, too ill-framed to make sense of? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm interested in those kinds of things. Uh, another air research area of interest for me is uh, new religious movements that I've been looking at for many years. I'm intrigued by how contemporary popular culture many times inspires uh, the creation of new religious movements. Uh, years ago, I wrote a chapter on matrixism. Uh, for a, a handbook which looked at uh, for inspiration spiritually from the series of Matrix films. Um, there, there is Jediism uh, from the Star Wars films. There are UFO religions, and there's been renewed interest in that with uh, the coming release of a, a report by the American government on, on UFOs and this type of thing. So uh, religious creation isn't limited to the axial age. You know, it's a, a something that happens all the time. And... Uh, just as a scholar of religion, I'm fascinated in these new religious movements. And what does it tell us about uh, the continued uh, human need to find meaning and, and to resource that meaning from various sources, whether it's pop culture or something else? It's a fascinating process. New religious movements and, you know, the, the, the healthy and unhealthy ones, the, the, the production of modern fundamentalisms as opposed to the spiritualities that try to break with religion, you know, that kind of stuff. There's, there's a lot of diversity 
in these fields, which for me brings me back to the question of the of the what and the who people are encountering, and 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 how to understand that more, and how to enable people more to experience God or the transcendent. Because one of the one of the, the the difficult things that I find, especially in relation with with uh, with Christianity, and especially in conversation with people that are giving up on religion, the the quest is to in, engage Christ rather than go. I've got to believe in Him, and you know it it changes. It changes to the whole thing of going. If I can't experience Christ, I'm not going to give my faith to Him, kind of thing. So so I think I think the the the, the faith challenges. You know, obviously, they depend on the context that people are in and their own personal narrative, their own history, their own quests and that. But I think missiologically and, you know, just in terms of the general conversations, there's a big challenge around the availability of God or the availability of the transcendent and the degree to which our religions enable us to cross over into engagement with that or the degree to which the religions basically go well you don't have to do it for yourself because we've got this body of history we've got this body of authority we've got this body of doctrine or we've got people we can look back in history you know you can always look back whether it's to your religious texts or within your history to the spiritual greats and go look they genuinely experience God so we just accept what they did and attribute that to ourselves and so so I, I think one of the peculiarities about our age that I that I really love is people are more and more insistent on coming back to the first person uh, the present continuous rather than the yes you know Christ did it 2,000 years ago or David did it what three four thousand years ago you know so his spirituality i can draw on for myself or you know the biblical text i can draw on for myself and just appropriate these promises and ideas you know i'm finding that that holds less ground and meaning for people than the than the quest to go can i actually experience god can i hear from god myself and i'm wondering you know just as you go about with conversations with people have you observed something similarly to that at all or is this uh is this just a peculiarity of my of my context no i think so i think people are, are particularly in the american context and to a certain extent the broader western context were very very much individual oriented and uh, uh rather than uh, looking to what a particular group uh or tradition may provide um people are, are looking for things themselves i think that feeds well into many of the nuns in that they're they're creating what has been called many times a cafeteria or a smorgasbord approach to spirituality where rather than being limited by one particular tradition that comes by way of the the group itself or tradition uh they're they're grabbing elements based upon their individual choice and preferences and creating their own individualized spiritual quest uh i i i'm i appreciate that uh, i think we all uh, approach uh, religion as individuals, but I think we also need to balance that out by uh, appropriate concerns for, for things like groups and community and tradition. So it's a, it's a difficult thing to, to navigate. One be, can be uh, too individualistic, just as one can be uh, too focused on tradition or a group. So it, it's a fascinating time to, uh, to be a, a person pursuing a religion and studying religion at the same time. Sure. John, fascinating being in conversation with you both in terms of your Pretty history, so. your story, which you've been <laughs> yeah. so kind to share with us, and your present work. Um, going to watch, watch that space very closely, I think, from my side. 
Well, gentlemen, I appreciate uh, the opportunity and, and coming on your radar and being able to work out a time we're able to have the conversation and explore these questions. It's always nice to engage a great guest like you who's uh, fluid in your thinking and got so much experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's a real privilege and thank you for taking yeah, I mean, thank you for making the time and battling through the time zones and the, <laughs> and the misconnections <laughs> to, to arrive here. Uh, you know, I, um, I think two things, uh, Orfam. The one thing is, is, is uh, this is a great conversation to get to know you and get to introduce your ideas, but uh, it would be nice to, to have a conversation again with you in future. We'll have a few conversations with you. And so, you know, I just want to extend that as a, as a pre-invitation and see if, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you would feel the same yeah. if you'd be open for that. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to come back. And now we know a little bit better how to navigate the, the time differences. So hope it goes smoother. <laughs> and uh, and if, there's, if there's two or three of your works that you would reference, uh, like throughout for a, for a listener to, to like get in more touch with, you know, the, the difference in, in outlook, you know, especially the more hospitable approach to conversations around faith and that, mm. like are there two or three that you would uh, be able to highlight or be willing to? Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, one was uh, a book I did uh, years ago when I, after I'd come out of the counter cult and into a missiological approach, and uh, it's a book on uh, new religious movements. It's called, it's called Encountering New Religious Movements. And uh, I was a co-editor and uh, I wrote uh, a chapter in that volume. And it lays out not only the theology and the theory, but it includes case studies of uh, Christians uh, in Australia and the United States and various places who were doing creative missiological work um, in reaction to groups that are often dismissed as cult groups. And uh, that, that I was fortunate that book won a Christian Today Book of the Year Award. And um, don't know if it's done anything since, but it's still out there. And then uh, my uh, more recent book is called A Charitable Orthopathy. And that, again, is a multi-contributor book that I co-authored and wrote a chapter on. My chapter was looking at the emotion of disgust and how that plays a part many times in conservative uh, Christian responses to other religious traditions. But all the contributors are addressing the emotional aspect of how we relate to people in other religious traditions. And as I said earlier in the program, that's a neglected area. We tend to look at orthodoxy, the doctrine or the practices, orthopraxy. But what are the emotions that we bring? Because it's the emotions which really then determine uh, the answers to questions about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And so uh, both of those uh, our books are available and folks Google me. They can find plenty of other online things I've written as well. Mm, thank you, John, for pointing those out. That's absolutely fantastic. We'll make sure just to, to put links to, to both uh, the multifaithmatters.org and those, those works in the show notes so that people can, can reference and, and connect with you and your work around that. Great. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for your kindness and uh, giving us so much of your time and conversation, letting us ask all these questions. Well, good. Hopefully you get a good uh, listener response. I'm sure we will. Great, John. Thank you very much.